Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. I'm Heather Hoops Matthews here with Nexon Pruitt Healthcare Attorney Matthew Roberts. We have an interesting topic today to talk about regarding COVID-19, and that is really we're going to be talking about benefits. And we talked earlier about, you called them payers, and I'm a layperson, so hospitals and companies or whatever. What, what are they doing in relation to covering COVID-19? Well, the, the good news is with respect to the folks paying the bill for healthcare services related to COVID, uh, for the most part, the payers, uh, including insurance companies, employers, and government payers like Medicare and Medicaid, have been covering COVID-related claims, COVID testing, without any concern. So that the governments and the payers were very quick to come in and said, we'll cover this because they recognize we're in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. That would have been devastating. I, you know, I hadn't thought about that until you brought it up, but if it hadn't, that yeah, it would be a, huge, this, be a massive issue. Huge issue. Just, yeah. Yes. So. Well, that's good to hear. And we are going to talk more uh, topics, questions around topics like that coming up next on Taking the Pulse. Josh Baker, the director of South Carolina's Department of Health and Human Services, will be worth, with us uh, on Taking the Pulse. We will talk about the agency as it um, oversees health care benefits for the South Carolina citizens and the impact that COVID-19 has had on HHS. So stay with us for Taking the Pulse. Welcome back, everyone. Joining us today on Taking the Pulse is Josh Baker. He's the director of South Carolina's Department of Health and Human Services, an agency which provides health care benefits to more than one million South Carolinians. Now, before his health care venture, Josh also served as Governor Nikki Haley's Deputy Chief of Staff for Budget and Salary. Josh, thank you for joining us today. HHS is a big agency that, you know, touches much of South Carolina's population. How has COVID-19 impacted your agency, your staff, and the people that you serve so far? Great, uh, Matthew and Heather, it's, it's good to be here today. And, it, you know, I've, I've spent about 10 years in state government in South Carolina, and I've had a front seat to winter storms, about half dozen hurricanes, record flooding, and, and now a pandemic. And, you know, the first thing I'd say is that the state has been blessed with uh, leadership that has been truly professional, really focused on the citizens, um, solving the solution, putting, you know, partisan or position uh, issues aside and, and sort of focusing on solutions. And so from the governor to the uh, legislators that I deal with, mostly in appropriations, Chairman Smith for Kurtzman and Alexander, um, it, it's really been a team effort. And then with the fellow members of the cabinet, Director Goldsby, uh, Mary Poole, Mike Leach over at DSS, and, and many, many others, Kim Stinson at Emergency Management. I think the first thing I'd say is that what the state does is come together as a team. And so we've, we've had a big opportunity for cross-functional work during the pandemic response. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, Medicaid is big, right? So if we're talking about the, the impact of the uh, coronavirus event, about one in four people in the state received some sort of coverage from us and were the primary payer for about one in five. Um, but for all that financial power, really we, we purchase things. We don't provide services directly. We don't regulate entities. Um, we don't really even have a direct financial re- uh, relationship with um, beneficiaries. So what we do and where we influence healthcare is very much through a bank shop where we use economic incentives and I think if I'm going to talk about the impact of COVID, it's going to be on three axes, which is beneficiaries, providers, and then the core agency itself. 
you know, for beneficiaries, it's like nothing we've ever seen before. You have what is a public health emergency at the same time society is retrenching and disengaging from the healthcare system. And so there's been a fair amount of coaxing to get individuals to re-engage, get that texting or get that testing, interact for primary and emergent care. For the provider community, um, it's been fascinating in the, uh, and I think when you had uh, Thor Kirby from the Hospital Association on, he said something very, very similar, which is just at the time we want that infrastructure to be in place, their business model has been challenged and they've had to retrench a little bit as well. And so um, you've seen state payers like me and federal payers try to respond um, with supplemental payments and economic incentives as well. Um, but, but there's been lots of conversation and collaboration with different parts of the provider community to make sure those networks stay strong and stay in place. And then from the core agency standpoint, yeah, we've ridden the same wave every other business has. We went from you know 10% telecommuting to nearly 70% overnight. Our county offices closed with other governments um, and political entities, really um, creating strain on the, the public-facing aspect of the agency and um, our entire financing model changed. So every assumption we had put in place about enrollment, about utilization, about what fund sources were, um, sort of changed with every congressional and state action. And, and with, as with every one of these events, regardless of type, everybody's trying to act at once. So Congress is passing laws, the General Assembly's passing laws, state and federal agencies are engaging in rulemaking. And, and so, and we're pulling resources from the day-to-day -to, -day to, to put flexibilities and, and, um, and policies in place so beneficiaries can leverage telemedicine and re-engage in the system. And so everything for about four months either got paused or went into fast forward. And, and there kind of wasn't a lot of in-between. Right. And, and so that, that's really what things have been like since, since February and March. Well, Josh, you're a, a seasoned uh, leader in the state, have worked in the governor's office now, have worked at the agency for several years. Uh, this is a, like nothing we've ever seen. What have you personally learned as a leader uh, through the last five or six months? Uh, because you've had a lot of information thrown at you. You've had a lot of political, regulatory, economic uh, realities imposed upon you. What have, And you represent the, the largest state agency uh, we have in South Carolina. What have you personally learned about leadership uh, because of this pandemic and, and its impact? You know, I think that, and, and I wish I, I could uh, take credit for this entirely, but, but I think one of my staff summed this up in, in the best way in our experience. You know, stress, either good or bad, heat or famine, um, sort of doesn't change who you are, it just makes you more of what you are. And so I think it's really amplified both the strengths and the weaknesses of individuals and really trying to pull the team together um, to, to work with where your strengths are and where maybe your blind spots are to very, very rapidly respond to a changing environment. And that doesn't just extend, that doesn't stop at the agency. I think that there have been lots of conversations that society have had and, and that the public has had about um, where things add value and at what time. Very early on, there was a discussion about what is essential and what is not essential. And, and so individuals had to make trade-offs in ways that I think were very uncomfortable, right, between social isolation and access to care. I think, I think we had to have tough conversations with providers about what provider types and what services 
um, or could be delayed or shouldn't be delayed. And, and I think where this is a really good example of, of where that conversation should mature over time is behavioral health. I think in the, in the days and weeks, uh, the, the initial part of the COVID response, we delayed lots of therapies for individuals and said the most important thing is we're gonna go into this um, sort of stay at home or work condition um, and try not to engage in non-essential or non-emergent activities. But as days, weeks, and months have moved on, behavioral health, substance use treatment, um, uh, regular therapeutic activities have really come back to the forefront. So I think it's important not to look at um, any decision or value judgment we make as monolithic, but rather as dynamic. And it's not just whether or not something is essential or non-essential or, or valuable or not valuable, but what is the right place and time um, to insert uh, an activity, a treatment, a therapy, or a decision into beneficiaries' lives, and where are the, the risks of maybe slightly degraded quality worth access? And so those are really the decisions we've had to balance, and, and these are big questions that aren't going to go away. Prior to COVID-19, I remember that HHS had um, really spearheaded a multi-agency effort, I think, to extend benefits to some of the vulnerable populations you just mentioned. Um, people with, uh, you know, mental health needs, I think uh, pregnant people who, uh, pregnant ladies who may not have some access. What, that was a wonderful effort. Has, has COVID-19 impacted that then as well? Is that what I hear you saying? It, it absolutely has, and that's a great question. Um, you know, the, the initiative you're talking about is Governor Master's number one priority for this agency, and that was the, the community engagement 1115 waiver we sought um, from CMS. It was actually, you know, two, technically two waivers, um, and, and involved a couple of principles. I mean, I think the first is, is the headline of community engagement, which is identifying folks within the Medicaid program who are able to seek school work um, or, or engage in their community. and really assist them and push them in the direction of doing that. It also closed some coverage gaps that we think created in the context of community engagement some irrational economic incentives. So this is parents of, of children who make too much money to receive services through the Medicaid program under current rules, um, but not enough to seek subsidized insurance on the federal exchange and often are part-time workers who don't have employer-sponsored insurance. And so that gap closed, and then a couple other targeted populations. You mentioned a few, homeless individuals with justice involvement, um, and those with serious substance use disorders, and biological parents of foster children, where we're trying to engage in family reunification, but those parents aren't covered once they lose access, once that legal relationship with their, their children is threatened or severed. And, and then a, a cornerstone policy initiative, which was extending postpartum care for women from 60 days after birth for an entire year. Um, you know, CMS ultimately asked that we pull that one request, um, but we're seeing some bipartisan efforts to uh, push that coverage because we see a lot of those bad birth outcomes after that 60 day period, but before the end of the year. Now, when Congress passed the famous first coronavirus response act, um, we had to pause our eligibility processes and standards effectively at January 2020. So we've not been able to implement any of the new eligibility standards that might go along with those 1115 waivers. And as you know, Secretary Azar just extended the um, public health emergency well into January. So what the department has opted to do is ramp that effort back up 
So as soon as that public health emergency ends, we'll be able to implement. What have some of those people had to do in the meantime? I mean, I guess just not have services? Well, so, um, you know, it's, it's a gap that continues um, to exist. And, and I think that the department engages in a number of other efforts to, to subsidize uh, care for non-covered populations. And we actually highlight that in our budget request this year. So, um, you know, through our budget, the General Assembly provides subsidies for um, federally qualified health centers, free clinics, um, healthy outcomes grants through a number of hospitals. And, and we also should remember that um, South Carolina uh, Medicaid, my agency, provides over $550 million annually to hospitals to cover disproportionate share Medicaid services and uncompensated care. Um, so while they may not receive quite the full portfolio of services that being a full benefit Medicaid member would offer them until we're able to implement, um, that there are other options available. And I, I would note that the agency's implementation plan really contemplated a January 1, 2022 go live anyway. So um, I, I don't know that we're terribly off schedule um, with implementation. Josh, telehealth capabilities um, have become vital during this pandemic period. And we've seen a, a huge increase in the use of telehealth for obvious reasons. Orangeburg, an Orangeburg County School District recently uh, unveiled its SMART program, which is a program allowing primary care and behavioral health providers to, to connect with families via telemedicine, via the school district's website. Um, what is uh, HHS doing to support programs like this, or is it involved in other telehealth-based programs uh, to, to reach out to some of the beneficiaries? Yeah, sure. You know, when, when the pandemic um, started, when the response period started, uh, telemedicine, uh, as far as professional clients go, was about a quarter of a percent of activities. And it jumped to just over 10% um, in, in just a few short weeks. And so what we've seen in, in just a few months is an unprecedented expansion of telemedicine activity. Now, um, South Carolina was an early adopter of telemedicine. The General Assembly for years has funded infrastructure development largely through the Medical University of South Carolina to help us alliance. And, and we've covered physicians and psychiatry and, and a few other things in time for a while, but, but adoption um, was was light. And so I think one, we, we try to be eminently flexible and have extended that coverage um, to licensed providers sort of further down the clinical scale to um, facilitate that uptake and adoption. Um, we also, you know, the, the state has put a fair amount of money, not to my agency, but a fair amount of money for to improve broadband access. Because I think one of the things you're going to see is that well, telemedicine has tremendous opportunity to expand access, particularly in rural and underserved areas. Um, we have the same infrastructure asymmetry in those areas with respect to roads and broadband as well. And you're seeing a real effort from the state now to do that. So, you know, we think that if um, school districts want to use that infrastructure um, to pair families with their primary care physician, that that's a great way to use it. You know, we, we caution a little bit that what we want to make sure is that those programs, those school-based programs, are pairing a child um, with a primary care physician where we're going to have some continuity of care. And also to make sure that parents are really integrated in that relationship. And there's not a locus of activity that occurs at school 
and and the locus of activity that, that home is not um, incorporated. Earlier um, in the pandemic, you're talking about families. Made, makes me think of this. Um, we interviewed the executive director of Deotis, the state's um, Department of Alcohol and Other Abuse Substances Agency, and she talked about even then that. Uh, overdoses had increased and were on the rise. Has that impacted HHS and um, and how has your agency, you know, had to respond to to that unfortunate part of this pandemic? And boy, you know, Director Goldsby has just been a tireless champion um, for this issue, and, and we think she's doing a great job. And although you know, typically she's in my building, we haven't been able to see her for a while, and and, and we can't wait to start collaborating collaborating not over phone all the time anymore but um, you know I, I'd say a couple of things about that one there's there's a good number of national studies that have indicated that, that well um, opioid abuse uh, and overdoses have been on the rise we're seeing other troubling trends as well package sales of alcohol are up package size of alcohol is up day-to-day consumption has increased and, and quantity of consumption has increased in populations of concern. And, and I think with this social isolation sets in, the, the dual stressors of unemployment, social withdrawal, um, and, and potentially a reluctance to engage the healthcare system has really elicited some behaviors that, that we're concerned about. I think that early on in the pandemic, um, Director Goldsby raised her hand and said, we need as much telehealth flexibility as possible. Um, I, I think they first tied ads to push devices out to the community. And we have really tried to match um, what our telehealth flexibilities are for both her agency and those local drug and alcohol clinics with what appropriate scope of practice is so that payment is not a barrier to access. You know, it's kind of one of those circumstances where we wish we could do more, but we're not a service provider. Um, so I think as, as society continues to loosen up, what we'll do is continue to engage our social media presence with Deotis, with the Department of Mental Health, and really encourage folks to get opioidly abuse, methamphetamine, alcohol um, consumption problems to really seek the help that they need to address what has been a very stressful time um, for our state and for our well, Josh, um, much of the Medicaid population is managed by managed care organizations. And so how have you worked with these managed care organizations, insurance companies, to help uh, you know, ensure continuity of care, access of care? How have, how have they helped partner with the state to address this pandemic? Yeah, you know, the governor always says communicate, collaborate, cooperate. And so um, I think what we try to do is talk very, very frequently. I think it's twice a week in the early um Early on in the response period, I would speak directly with plan presidents through their alliance, and we had a lot of good conversations. Um, we we really wanted to make sure that while we weren't overly prescriptive with them, we set the expectation that um, administrative flexibilities be put in place. And, and to be fair to them, I mean, to, to give them credit where it's due, it, it didn't require a lot of arm twisting. I mean, they realized the nature of of the response period and they were willing to team up with the state readily. So getting those prescriptions out, providing opportunities by mail, opening up the telehealth flexibilities. And we communicated similarly with commercial insurance plans and the um, public employee benefit agencies. So for example, Blue Cross Blue Shield doesn't necessarily have the biggest Medicaid 
managed care plan in the state, but they have a tremendous commercial presence and their clinical staff and corporate staff are very willing to work and communicate. And so we we uh we enjoyed that. It's good. The consequence of that was beneficiaries had a consistent message. The provider community wasn't getting too many mixed messages about what flexibility was going to be or not be between commercial and public payers. And 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 I think that that was the point. So I think we said clear expectations, we were flexible, we spoke often, um, and I think the response was a lot better as a it's, you know, the pandemic did force all of us to collaborate more yeah. and in different ways, which I think is a positive. Via Zoom. Right, via yeah. Zoom. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is good to see you on Zoom today. And and really, Josh, thank you for taking the time to join us. I mean, your agency is, is huge. Um, as you noted, touching one in four South Carolinians, directly serving one in five. I mean, when you think about those numbers, that is a very big responsibility. And it's good to hear uh, what's going on inside, and and I just can ask you to continue to press on for those people who need you. Uh, it's a very you know special population that you serve, uh, and so we're grateful for you taking the time today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. It's a, it's really a privilege to serve the state. Good talking to you all today. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. There is a lot that HHS covers that I didn't think about. Oh no, it's it's a massive agency and 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 Josh has a, a, a very, very busy and important job. So it's most folks who are not involved in the healthcare space don't realize what HHS does and how it impacts their lives, whether they are a recipient of Medicaid beneficiaries or not directly. Uh, but it's very important to the state. It's important to the state's economy and it's to its wellness, its mm. citizens' wellness. So very important. Yes. Well, Wellness will continue to be our topic on Taking the Pulse. Uh, Matthew and I were talking beforehand. We hope to you know, maybe merge or emerge out of COVID topics one day soon. But until then, we'll press on and we ask that you do the same. And we wish you the, we the best and hope to see you next time on Taking the Pulse.